to the Rural Voice, the National Rural Education Association podcast uh, with my co-host, Dr. Jared Bigham, Dr. Chris Silver. And we are just excited as can be because we're finishing up our keynote series with our TED Talk presenters at our Infair Conference in Indianapolis in November. And we, it is a pleasure to welcome Dr. Christina Kishimoto to our podcast. Christina, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, it's great to be joining you. I am in Hawaii right now. I live in uh, Honolulu and I run an organization called Voice for Equity. It is a organization focused on uh, ensuring you have the voices of everyone in the community at the table as policies are being made. And also your your prior job stint was a kind of large job, correct? So you tell us a little bit about that as well. Oh, I was a superintendent in Hawaii of education, and we have 180,000 students here across seven islands. It is a wonderful organization, but as you know, superintendents across the nation have struggled with COVID, and that's on top of just a, a tough job already in educating all of our public school kids. I was a superintendent in Gilbert, Arizona, and a superintendent in Hartford, Connecticut before that. You have three unique situations and uh, uh, context of rural and suburban and urban mixed in there as well, I would say, across those three areas. Yes, very different. So so I'm going to ask the first question here. What should our listeners and folks attending our conference expect from your TED Talk? What what are they going to bring back from listening to you talk at the conference? One of the things I'm going to focus on, on the con- at the conference is that educators, whether you're talking about teachers or principals or superintendents, have much more power through policy than they realize. And in this nation, we often have educators who shy away from directly doing policy work uh, and influencing what legislators and you know mayors, governors, uh, our federal uh, leaders are, are doing. Uh, and wait for decisions to come down. But the fact is that the educator voice is quite powerful when it's unified and it's out there aggressively demanding support for quality education for all of our kids. I'm going to give it amen. That, that is, uh, I'm, I'm excited to listen and uh, that I agree with you 110%. Dr. Bigham, what do you got for us? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right that, um, that educators have this power that I don't think they realize. And uh, especially when it comes to what's going on in the classroom where they're the, the content experts as well as the practitioner experts that can really be the, be the voice of reason in some of these policy uh, conversations that we had. And I've found that, Uh, One of the best ways to leverage that teacher voice is when they invite policymakers to come to their classrooms. Uh, I've seen that a lot of times. So what's your thoughts on that, on on getting policymakers in the classroom to actually uh, get eye to eye with what's going on? Well, you know, when a policymaker is uh, and I'll, I'll just put it bluntly. Uh, Some of them sometimes are running their mouths from a very safe distance from the classroom. Uh, That's not to say that policymakers are not supportive of teachers. Uh, They usually are fans of teachers, but they often speak from 
you know, uh, ignorance of what it takes to run a classroom and ignorance of what's happening in the classroom and what kids need to really be engaged. So I always tell teachers and principals, invite your elective leaders in, not just your elected leaders, the influencers. You know, sometimes there are CEOs in your community in the private sector who have a lot of uh, kind of leverage and, and influence on, on policies. And, and sometimes educators don't recognize that influence. Invite them as well. Well, invite that local CEO who is actually uh, uh, having a lot of influence on the on education policies, much more so than the educators themselves. So once they're in the classroom, it's hard uh, not to fall in love with the kids and not to be supportive of teachers and not to change your tune. Uh, and so, again, don't let them uh, run their mouths from afar. Yeah, I, I used to. Uh, I, I, would, I, I used to do a little. Ed, That's good. I used to do a little education lobbying in a, a former role, and uh, it used to crack me up where policymakers got their information that they were literally using to craft new legislation. And it, you know, I, if I had a dollar for every time I heard. You know, I go to church with a lady that's an elementary teacher, and she told me X, or, you know, I, I, there you go. Yes. I was in the grocery store, and I was talking to a, a parent that told me, you know, Y and Z. And so the, and that's that's how they craft uh, policy a lot of times. And it used to just, I mean, back then it used to give me a migraine. Now I just look back and laugh, but that – um, but it did give me the idea of inviting legislators into the classrooms of their district schools. Just, I mean, in particular, I remember when uh, the Common Core war was raging across the state, and I would ask our policymakers, have you ever been in a lesson where they're teaching a Common Core standard? Like, well, no, but I've, I've talked to Johnny and his – his third niece is a is a teacher and and she doesn't like that. And I said, well, what do you think about visiting a classroom where you see that you know these standards in action? And um, for a lot of them, actually, it blew their mind because they'd never been invited to a school before, except for some kind of event, you know, that they might be a keynote speaker. So right, uh, it was a new dynamic for a lot of these policymakers. And I set up a little over a hundred visits one year. And uh, none of them were a negative at all. It was they all came out of there with a, an appreciation or a new appreciation for what was going on in the classroom. And it's not just legislators. Right. It's board members as well. I've had plenty of board members uh, that the only time they're hearing about and talking about what's happening in the classroom is at the board meeting. Well, uh, you know, that doesn't give you any insight at all. And so if you're going to be. Uh, having the accountability for for you know uh, policies that determine what's happening in the classroom, you need to talk to teachers. You need to visit with teachers and principals uh, before you make those policy decisions. So, so let me ask you a follow up to that one because that's a big one. Because school board, if you look across the country, rural school board members either a they have trouble finding people to run to be a school board member. Thank you. Or B, they have people that uh, are on there with a hidden agenda to get something done. So how are, how, in your experience and what you're wanting to bring to the table here, how do you, um, how do you suggest teachers, principals, 
really central office staff handle those board members that are kind of lethargic, not there, or actually there with a hidden agenda? Because that's a big part of this. Well, you know, there are a couple of layers. One is, you know, if if there are board members that are elected by the citizenry, then uh, yes, you know, as parents, as teachers, you can you can go out and put a lot of pressure on them um, and ask them the questions around. Well, where are you getting your information? Have, when's the last time you visited schools? You know, come come in and be part of the discussion. Uh, one of the things when I was in the Hartford Public Schools in Connecticut that we did, which was really powerful, parents were complaining about, you know, educational, you know, neglect, essentially, from the board. And, and so the board and the superintendent started bringing in legislators and doing rounds of community meetings in the school and holding all their board meetings in the school. And it changed the dynamics completely. So, you know, the community has and the teachers have a lot of uh, opportunity to to impact how boards uh, behave as well. That's not always true. Uh, and then if the board is appointed, you know, like my uh, appointment in Hawaii, the board is appointed by the governor. Then uh, you know the the if the board is not doing what they what they need to be doing, sometimes the the uh, way in which you change that behavior to the positive is you need the influences in community to go put pressure on the governor. And, and demand from the governor that we have board members who are fully invested in public education and are in the schools and are supporting principals and understand that the superintendent is, is part of that governance structure. You know, it's unacceptable the kind of fighting that we see very publicly sometimes across the nation, uh, especially fighting between the, the board and, and the superintendent, that that really is one team. And so it just kind of implodes from within. And that's that's been allowed to happen across many, many districts. That's unfortunate. That's a good point. I would agree. Jared, did you follow up on anything? Yeah, I'm just curious if you had a, a, a concrete example you could share with some educators um, where practitioners, whether it was teachers or administrators, helped to either turn the tide uh, in a policy conversation or helped craft legislation that really reflected the views and values of those educators? Is there, is there something you could point to so that people out there know we're not just, this isn't pie in the sky, that they actually can make a difference in these conversations? Oh, absolutely. I'm going to go back to Hartford, Connecticut, uh, where it had gotten to such a crisis point that it had a state takeover of the Board of Ed, uh, and, and it felt impossible to turn that district around. And the community uh, really pushed forward uh, and said, look, we, we've got to, we, we can do better, and our kids need this. Uh, and uh, with the, the influence of the community showing up at board meetings and even showing up at the governor's uh, place and, you know, at the legislature and, and city council, they just showed up everywhere and demanded this quality and this change. And what ended up happening is that the board adopted reform policies. That's what it was called at that time. And basically what it was a series of policies that said that when a school is performing below a certain level, the board will take action in public to make determinations about how to improve that school. It will not be allowed to just go on and on uh, in, low, in, in a state of low performance 
And so that essentially meant the board took the uh, accountability on that it's them. It's on them to come up with the money, the support, the new designs, and to have as part of that policy, they put in place language that said when that happens, they will be half or more of the seats at the decision making table with the board will be parents. That was a game changer. I mean, that district went from, you know, graduation rates that were at crisis level at 30, 32 percent level. Imagine that high school graduation in the city at 32 percent. It doubled to the 60, 64 percent overnight because of this kind of change that that was grassroots change and pressure on the board. Wow. Yeah. Major transparency as well. Correct. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, public education in our schools, they belong to the public. And sometimes we forget that. And that's hard work. It's it's really complicated. It's hard to have those community forums and have so many voices because you can't control what those voices are going to say or what those voices are going to reflect back to you about whether you're doing a good job or not. But the idea is not just to have those voices out there, but to have the voices with the assumption that we have those voices at the table to be collaborative, not to be combative. Otherwise, the kids lose out. That's a good point. That's a great point. And, and I think with our ESSER money that's coming, that's been in districts, for, you know, the three the CARES Act funding, there's a lot of transparency in that as well, or there should be. And I think that's been important as well. Yeah, think about... Uh, the amount of infusion of dollars coming in to do some really innovative things. The idea is there are some things that have to be fixed. And, you know, whether we're talking about the infrastructure funds to fix schools that are falling, falling down and falling apart, not, that I consider, you know, schools that are falling apart are just not respectful uh, of kids, right, and of education. So we've got to address that. But we also have programmatic funds to say, how do we get into uh, some of the innovations that we have long wanted to uh, and have been hesitant on? Uh, we have new money to really uh, try something different. And I'll give you an example of something I did in back in June, right before I left my role as state superintendent in Hawaii, is I issued one thousand uh, 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 grants to teachers. They were called innovation grants grants. You tell me how you're going to do something different in the classroom. You get $1,000 to support that. Uh, we have teachers all over the state of Hawaii right now innovating in the most incredible ways. That's amazing. That's a great idea. Um, and, and Jerry, when you look at those amazing and kind of creative outside the box ideas, it kind of brings us to our question that we ask every podcast. It, it does. But before we get that, I'm, I would be curious to learn more about your current organization because it sounds like it's it's really about coalition building or, or collaboration across multiple sectors so can you tell us a little bit more about about that work and, and what it looks like and why why the impetus for that organization so one of the things I've, I've been a superintendent for 10 years and a deputy superintendent for six years before that I've been in education for over 25 years. And I'm at a point in my career where I said I could keep leading as a superintendent or I can really focus on preparing future superintendents and future leaders in education uh, as policy leaders, which I find is, is, is just an untapped uh, you know, area for a lot of superintendents because they're just overwhelmed by the day-to-day -day sometimes. And so I decided to create this organization called Voice for Equity, and it's primarily focused on women and leaders of color, not exclusively, but certainly focusing on that. Because in this country, we still have, you know, 
80, 84% of our teachers are women. So the pipeline is full of women. Uh, but when it comes to the superintendency, we only have 27% of the nation's superintendents are women. There's a lot of gatekeeping up to the CEO level. And I'm of the opinion for some reason that if you had more women leader, we may leading, we may have less problems than, than we have <laughs> today. And, and just, just because you have, you know, you, you need to have all the voices at the table, right? Uh, and, and I find myself as a woman superintendent, I have found myself oftentimes in policy decision-making tables or, or decision-making tables, even in the community where I'm the only woman there. And how can that be? Um, you know, we, we have mothers uh, who are involved in the education. We have teachers who are primarily women. Why is the policy table so male um, oriented and leaning uh, and heavy? Uh, the, the fact is that it, it's the diversity at the table that's going to get the best thinking. I will say this. That this is a reason that we're excited that you're at the conference this fall, number one. And I, and I think you bring up a great point on women, leadership and education, the percentages and the numbers. And if you look at a lot of rural schools and a lot of rural superintendents, there's a shift and there's a change and there's a trend changing towards what you're addressing. But it's nowhere where it needs to be in the voice of people of color or or also women as well. So I'm, I'm excited you brought that up and uh, having a daughter. Uh, I want her to have every opportunity out there. Um, Absolutely. So. I have a daughter myself. She's a yeah. senior in college and about to uh, she's just been sworn into the Air Force. So I'm very proud Indeed. of her and she's not afraid to be a leader, but uh, it might have something to do with her mother. <laughs> it may, it, it may, it may a little bit. It may, maybe. you think? Yeah. Well, Dr. Bigham has three girls. Is that right? Three girls. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we, we all want them to succeed and in leadership roles. I, I think you're right. And, and I appreciate it. So, well, it's dads like you that really can leverage that change in, in, in terms of gender equity. We need more dads speaking up on behalf of their daughters. Yeah, I, I think and I appreciate that. And, and uh, I'm excited for you to be a part of our conference, but I'm also excited for you to meet a lot of the uh, leaders in our that are state affiliate directors that are female um, that uh, and the, the other folks at our conference as well. So that's that. We're, Great. I'm I am, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dr. Bigham, bring us home with the universal question, because I'm I'm pumped to hear this answer. Yeah. So we ask each guest the same question at the end. And if you were Harry Potter for a day and you had your wand and you could wave the wand one time, not for more additional wand waves, but just one one thing that you could do in the ed policy space, what would your wand wave be? My my one wave would be that the uh, table would be diverse and that every every voice uh, would be represented because uh, I think that's a game changer. Uh, that's what my whole organization is about. That's what I have, how I have lived my my leadership. Uh, it's voices at the table being empowered, uh, making the decision at the end of the day about what what happens in their own communities and what happens for their kids. And I want to say this, your wave, your one wave is how we should be anyway. It should uh, be. It yes. shouldn't be magic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I appreciate it. And I think that's a that's a big, uh, big push. So, uh, folks, if you want to hear more from um, 
Dr. Christina Kishimoto at the conference. It'll be TED Talk, and she's also going to do a breakout session uh, at the conference as well. So I, we look forward to seeing you either virtually or in person in November, and she'll be one of the highlighted speakers. So we're excited. Dr. Bigham, you want to close this out? Yes, absolutely. Make sure if you haven't registered yet, go ahead and, and register for the conference because uh, as if you've been following the series, we've we've got some unbelievable speakers. I honestly, Dr. Pratt, I think this might be the the best lineup of speakers that have been put together at this conference. So thank you for your work on that front. And so I'm just excited to get to see these people in person and uh, go have adult beverages and talk ed policy and stuff <laughs> like that. So um, we, we haven't, we haven't received that uh, sponsorship from Bud Light or Miller yet. So we'll, 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 we'll make no endorsements that we got Tennessee moonshine that, that um, I can bring for you. Uh, Dr. Kishimoto, if you, if oh, you this conference is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> well, I will tell you this. First we, of all, you just invited a, a New Yorker to a rural conference, a New York City girl. I mean, that that alone means it's going to be fun. <laughs> Definitely. And I believe you'll leave with stories you can put on other podcasts. I'm just going to leave it there. OK. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. It's been a pleasure. Um, thanks for, for listening. Thanks to Win Learning for being our sponsor. And thanks to Dr. Chris Silver for being the greatest producer on this side of the Mississippi. And I don't know about that, but I'll take we'll it. it to you. And it's been a pleasure. And tune in soon for another podcast and have a great evening. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast and website are those of Dr. Alan Pratt, Dr. Jared Bingham, and Dr. Christopher F. Silver, and do not represent the affiliated universities and or any organization affiliated with the hosts. This podcast and the accompanying material, including our website, represent the opinions of Dr. Alan Pratt, Dr. Jared Bingham, and Dr. Christopher F. Silver, and their guests to the show and website. The content here should not be taken as medical or professional advice and should be used at your own risk. The content here is for informational purposes only and should be understood as such. The Rural Voice Podcast or its hosts do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast. And the information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement. Further, the content of this podcast are pro the property of the National Rural Education Association and are protected under U.S. and international copyright and trademark law. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without prior written permission. By listening to this podcast, you agree to the terms and conditions. And while we make every effort to ensure that the information that we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Thank you.